All right, good morning, good morning, transit family. How's everyone doing this morning? We're good. How about that worship this morning? Can we hear it for the band? That was amazing. Thank you guys for leading us in that set. Uh, that was awesome. Um, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to or tap to Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 11 all the way to chapter 12, verse 26. Yes, 60 plus verses. We'll only be reading a few, and I'm going to be recapping the rest. Couple commercial breaks. One, if uh, you missed the announcement this morning, it is Volunteer Appreciation Sunday. And so if you are here today and a volunteer in one of our many departments, on the back table there, on that back wall, are some gifts for you as a thank you from us for coming here week in, week out to use the, the gifts that God has given you to build up the body of Christ. So make sure you grab a gift on the way out. And um, some of you, most of you know Butch and Delisa. They were with us for three to four years. Uh, and then uh, Butch went to the State Department, uh, and now they are stationed in India. And so uh, Shannon and Matt will be going to India for a wedding this month, and they have a card that you can sign because they're going to see Butch and Delisa in India. So find Matt and Shannon for that card. If you want to say how much you love and miss Butch and Delisa, find Matt and Shannon. They're back there, uh, and you can give them uh, your love via that card. Okay, so this year was a special year for Jen and I because we celebrated our 10-year anniversary. Yes. Thank you. Uh, we made it. Everything's downhill after 10 years, I hear. So, um, but for our 10-year anniversary, we, in the spring, we went on a uh, four-day vacation without the kids. I have three kids, six, four, and two. And so we went to a very quiet cabin retreat to the point that it was almost eerily quiet. Like the first morning, we have our coffee. We're spending time with Jesus together. And, and we're like, do you, do you hear that? It's the sound of nothing. It's the sound of silence. Like, can you throw a tantrum and chuck a toy car at my head just to like make us feel not so weird? Like, what is this, right? And so that, uh, that, those four days were amazing, right? It was this period, to use theological terms, of renewal, if you will, and restoration for our relationship. And what I mean by that is often in relationships, you have these moments of intense focus on the relationship where all distractions are removed so that you can finally see the other person accurately and respond accordingly. Right, and so we had that. That was like a 10-year a, a honeymoon phase. We're like, we're amazing. We love each other. This is awesome. It's been a crazy season where we feel like we've just been, you know, business partners just doing our thing. But like, this is amazing. So now let's make steps when we get back to normal life to keep this, this, this flame lit. Okay, so that was renewal. That was uh, restoration, that 10-year anniversary trip. But as you all know, eventually you got to return to the real world. Right? Bills got to get paid, diapers got to get changed, emails got to get responded to, so on and so forth. And so the reason I share that is that in our text today, if you've been with us for the last few weeks that we've been in Nehemiah, what we've seen is God's people are in that period of renewal and revival and restoration. It's been a roughly four-week period of renewal and restoration in their relation with God. So this is what we've seen the past few Sundays, is God's people are gathering in the thousands, upon thousands, up to 30 to 50,000 to corporately hear God's word, to confess and repent of their sins, to observe for seven days the Feast of Booths, living in tabernacles to symbolize how God provided for their ancestors in the wilderness. And then after that, they gather again. Uh, three, like we're three weeks in at this point. They gather again to put on sackcloth and ashes and confess their sins to God. And then as Jake preached last week, and then all of that led to them uh, renewing their covenant with God. 
So we've seen in, in, the, in the last few Sundays, the last few chapters in Nehemiah, this intense focus on God's people and their God, their relationship with God. They removed all the distractions. It's the season of renewal. And then they make a commitment saying, God, we finally have seen you rightly returning from exile. And because of that, we're, we're making some vows, signed and sealed, that we will walk in holiness and love and purity moving forward. And so, a quick summary of our text today is that God's people are leaving that season of renewal and revival, and they're returning to work. They're settling down. They're returning to normal. Like a, a quick summary of Nehemiah chapter 11 all the way to chapter 12, if you would look at it, what you'll see as you just glaze over it is it's this long list of God's people with different roles and responsibilities settling down in and around Jerusalem. This is after the renewal, after the revival. And so my sermon title this morning, in case you wanted to ask me what my sermon title is, it is Ministry in the Mundane. Ministry in the Mundane. And if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you know how important seasons of renewal and restoration and revival are in your life. You can look back on your calendar and say, God marked me there. Something changed there in the future. But always what happens is we have to return to the 9 to 5. We have to return to dropping the kids off at school, to the diaper changes, to, to all those things, those responsibilities that we have. And so ministry in the mundane. And I heard uh, some of you know Jeff Toomer. I grabbed a, 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 a lunch with him a while back, and we were talking about ministry. And I was just picking his brain on leadership and church leadership. And he said this. He said, Nick, in church leadership, and this applies to ministry, he says there two, there's two things. There's poetry and there's plumbing. There's poetry and there's plumbing. Poetry. There's some beautiful jaw-on-the-floor moments following Jesus. Man, God's just changing people's lives. God's speaking so clearly in supernatural ways. Uh, God answering awesome prayers, like, like momentum, things just awesome. And then there's plumbing, like literally like toilet clogged in, <laughs> in the church. Somebody's got to clean that up. We don't have a janitor. I'm, you know, like Jake and I are the janitor, right? Uh, emails, you know, all that stuff. There's poetry and there's plumbing. So the question I want to ask of our text, which is just two verses, but two chapters, and I'm, we're going to look at two verses, is this. How do we thrive and not just survive in the normal seasons of life? How do we keep the flame lit of zeal and passion for the Lord and for the lost in those normal seasons of life, in the quote-unquote mundane? So three points of my talk will be this one, three truths, three, three principles we're going to pull out and highlight in our text to help us thrive in the mundane is this. One, where you are is where God wants to use you. Two, what you have is what God wants to use. And three, who you are is who God wants to use. Where you are is where God wants to use you. What you have is what God wants to use. And lastly, who you are is who God wants to use. Let me read this, and then we will pray and dive in. Nehemiah 11, verses 1 through 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we prepare our hearts to receive your word. Lord, I don't want to give a good sermon, and I don't want uh, us to just want to receive a good sermon. We want you, God. We want our, 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 our lives reoriented, realigned to your will, to your desires for our life, God. So I, 
we open up our hearts and we say, come search us, O Lord, and see if there's any grievous way in us and lead us to the way of everlasting through your preached word today. May we not harden our hearts. May we soften our hearts. May we soften our necks that are, 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 are stiff and, and often uh, refusing to yield to your leadership and your guidance in your life. And would it be your love, the overwhelming depths of your love and mercy shown to us in Christ Jesus that softens our hearts, say that's the kind of God that we want to surrender our will to and live our lives for. Come Holy Spirit, have your way with our minds, our hearts, and with your word. And I pray, Jesus, that you be magnified, you would increase, and I would decrease. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, point number one, where you are is where God wants to use you. In verses one through two, we see that there was a need in our text. In 445 BC in Jerusalem, there was a need. And that need was the city had to be repopulated. The city had to be repopulated. Now, when you think of Jerusalem as a city to be repopulated, when you think of city, you might think of like really hipster coffee shops, right? Farm-to-table restaurants, uh, electric scooters that you use your app to pay for, right? That's not Jerusalem in 445 B.C. What Jerusalem looks like as a city in 445 B.C. is more like what Detroit looked like after the collapse of the auto industry. That's what, that's what in, verse, in Nehemiah 7, 4, this is what it says. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. The Babylonians, uh, a little bit over a century prior, they burned Jerusalem to the ground. They carpet-bombed it, essentially. They tore down the walls. And, and so what it means is people weren't living inside the city. There was no way to make money inside the city. Crime was probably an issue with those remaining in the city. It had the same kind of stigma that certain inner cities have in 445 B.C. Jerusalem as we face in 2022 America. That's the Jerusalem that needed to be repopulated. It needed revitalization. And so all that to say, living inside the walls of Jerusalem was not where you wanted you to settle down your family in 445. It's not, it wasn't something that you wanted for you and your family necessarily, necessarily. The countryside and the suburbs were far more appealing, even back then in 445 BC, as, as it still is today for some of us suburbanites. For those who relocated inside the city, this is what it meant if you were going to relocate inside the city. It was a calling to hard work of revitalizing and restoring the city to full economic growth, restoring Jerusalem to its former glory before it was uh, burnt to the ground by the Babylonians. That was hard work for you and your family. So it begs the question, well, how then do you decide who goes into the city to do this hard work? How do you decide? And we see in our text in verses 1 through 2 is they rolled, they rolled the dice, right? They cast lots is what it says in the text. And for the Old Covenant people of God, they had this, this dice, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't leaving the decision up to fate and chance like we might interpret it of like, hey, let's spin the wheel and see what happens, and fate decided. No, the old covenant people of God, uh, they believe this, that when they rolled the dice, that was, then that was them determining or discovering, that was them discovering what God's providential choice was for the future. That's how the, uh, Proverbs 16.33 says this. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It's from the Lord. So they're letting God decide who goes by essentially putting names in a hat and drawing out those names, trusting that it's God's, provident, God's providence that is pulling those names out of who he wants to live in his city and who he doesn't want to live in his city and who he wants in the burbs, okay? And so they determined the 
of the population. That's roughly 5,000 people that are going to live inside Jerusalem. Now, side note, you might say, hey, Nick, I've never seen you roll dice before. Is that how you got into ministry? Yes, I cast lots. That's how I determined my... No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. Um, the new covenant people of God, this is quick recap, no longer roll the dice or cast lots because we've been given the Holy Spirit. Uh, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we see no record in the New Testament scriptures of God's people doing this to determine uh, future steps. Why? Because of the uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones here, because of the immediate and the direct witness of the Holy Spirit. That our God is a God who speaks, our God is a God who leads, our God is a God, Emmanuel, who is present with us. And if you read the book of Acts, you see it was the church that was led by his spirit collectively. So that's why we no longer kind of roll the dice and cast lots. And so I'll have to say the impression we get is after this casting of lots for the 10% that would live inside the city and the 90% that would not, is that everyone was in agreement, was in agreement that it was God who decided this not them. It was God, God decided the 5,000 that would live inside and the 45,000 that would live outside the, uh, the city of God. And so in verse 2, we see the people chosen to live inside Jerusalem were blessed by the rest of the people. If you look at verse 2, it says they blessed the people that willingly chose to live inside Jerusalem. And so returning, all that say, returning to my first point, where you are is where God wants to use you. Here's a crazy thought. Are you guys ready to just have your minds blown? Right? One of my favorite emojis is like the head exploding emoji. That's probably like top number emoji. I just, I think that one's super creative out of a, a long list of really bad emojis. Okay. Crazy thought. What if God has you exactly where he wants you in your life? What if it's not an accident? What if you're, what if you're, what if you're right where God wants to use you? Where you are is where God wants you. Now, quick disclaimer. Yes, God very well might be calling you in this season and preparing your heart to the mission field or to a job transition or to another season. Absolutely, 1,000%. But listen, either way, before you get to the next season, he's got work for you in the present season. Before you get to the next season, he's got work for you right here, right now. Before God, yes, he will use you there, but he also wants to use you here. And often we suffer from this if-then fallacy as the people of God. This if-then fallacy in regards to our geography. And we say this, and this if-then fallacy shatters our thriving in the mundane. Because we believe that in the mundane is not where God has us. We believe the mundane is not ministry, and we'll see that this is exactly where God wants his kingdom to come. We say things like this, returning to our text. Maybe for the 45,000 suburbanites who didn't get chosen to that gritty, missional a hard, tough calling to rebuild a torn down Jerusalem, but they're living in the countryside, they're farming, or in the, they're in the suburbs and in, in the surrounding villages outside of Jerusalem. For the 45,000, it could have been like, they could have, they could have maybe wrestled with this thought. Oh man, well, if I was in the city of Jerusalem, then God would really use me to advance his kingdom, right? But I'm not really a missionary. I'm just a farmer. I'm just a uh, a shoemaker. I'm just a, a soccer mom in the burbs. Like, I'm not this diehard missionary giving my life on the mission field. With the if-then fallacy, we look at other people and we say, they're in ministry. I'm in the mundane. They're, oh, they're in ministry. They're advancing the kingdom. I'm in the mundane. And what if, just what if, there's absolutely no distinction between the two? What if there's no distinction between the mundane and the ministry? What if there's no, obviously there is, but what I'm getting at is what if there's no distinction between the sacred and the secular? And the simple reason why is all of life is ministry. 
All of life is ministry. Wherever you, your feet find you is ministry. Everything we do can be an act of worship and exaltation to God. I heard a, a song recently by a, a, an artist called Jason Upton, and the song title is Every Table is an Altar. Every table is an altar for the believer. And I've been reflecting on that, and I think it applies to my sermon here, just thinking through that idea of the altar is that, that, that place, that, that building that, that mortals would make to, to worship and to sacrifice that sacred space, building that sacred space to worship the divine. Right? That's what an altar is historically in the church, outside the churches. It's that sacred space where we, we worship God. And what if at community groups, we're gathered around the table. That's, in a way, an altar to God, thanking him for reconciling us in one body to him. And when we gather, it's a foretaste of that beautiful marriage supper of the Lamb of what's to come when we feast with Christ Jesus. Every table is an altar. And so let me go further into this point. You and I, the church of Jesus Christ, you and I are the temple of the living God. You yourself are filled with the Holy Spirit. We collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning this is where God's presence dwells, is inside of us and among his people. Like we've went through Acts. This is, this is him filling his temple, blood-bought temple, meaning wherever you go now, you are, you are walking on sacred ground. Wherever your feet find you is sacred ground, and whatever you do can be an act of worship and thanksgiving to God. Let me unpack it this way. Jesus, in John 4, is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and they're having a discussion on sacred spaces. They're having a discussion on, well, the Samaritans, hey, we worship at this mountain, and uh, the Jews worship God on this mountain. They both had temples. They both had sacred spaces where uh, mortals would go and worship the divine, right? That sacred space. And Jesus is saying, there is coming a moment where worship, sacred spaces, will not be contained to geographical locations, but it will be wherever my spirit-filled people go who worship me in spirit and truth. And so what that means is when today, um, tomorrow, when you walk into the Pentagon, that's sacred ground. Because you're a temple of God. And worship, incense, prayers, worship, intercession can arise from that Pentagon. What that means is, is, is tomorrow morning, with that blowout diaper, maybe the third of the day, and you're at the diaper-changing station, that's an altar. That's a sacred space. That's where worship can be risen to God. And you can say, God, I'm offering this up to you, this child up to you. I'm praying over him. I'm thanking you. Everywhere we go is sacred space as followers of Jesus because we are the temple of the living God. And those who worship him are going to worship in spirit and truth. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem to worship him at the temple anymore. We can worship him right here and right now. And I don't know about you, but what that means is that if you're in the mundane, that wherever you find yourself, you can be used by God to pull the ethics and the presence essentially of heaven down into that reality. That's, what we're, that's how we're to live our lives, is not pull hell up, but to pull hell down wherever we find us, wherever God has placed us. Colossians 3.17 puts it this way. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what, where has God placed you? What has he called you to do? And what if where he has placed you is where he wants you? What if you are the exact mom that God has for your kids? What if right that, that role that you have at that job is right where God wants you? 
in this season. And so then the application looks like this before we move on to our second point, is one, we have to get out of the stinking thinking, the lies that God can't use me right where I'm at because I'm not on stage with the microphone. That's a lie from hell itself. We have to renounce that lie, come out of agreement of that lie that, oh, if only I was on the mission field. Anywhere you go is a mission field. There's the lost in suburbia and there's the lost overseas. And God very well might call you to lay down your life to the nations. And God very well might call you to stay and to love those in America. We need to renounce the lies that God can't use you where you're at. And then secondly, thank God for where he has placed you. Thank God for the job he's given you. Thank God for the neighbors he's given you. Thank God for the influence that you have right now. And yes, very well, God, very well, and I, and I hope to God that this might be the case for some of you, that he'll call you and your families to go to the mission field and lay your life down there. Yes, let it be, but until that time comes, uh, thank him now for where he's placed you. And it's no accident where he has you. Where he has you is where he wants to use you. And lastly, begin to prayerfully ask God, God, what does it look like to pull heaven down into the Pentagon? And to my cubicle. What does it look like to pull heaven down at the diaper changing table? What does it look like to pull heaven down in my commute? What does it look like in the mundane to uh, keep constant, close communion with you, knowing that it's not wasted, that you're using that? Secondly, second point, what you have is what God wants to use. What you have is what God wants to use. If you look at chapters 11 and chapter 12 of Nehemiah, it's not just a long list of names of those who settled inside and outside Jerusalem, but also of various roles and responsibilities of God's people. And we see that with these roles and responsibilities, some, some you would categorize this as ministry, and some you would categorize as, hey, this is kind of mundane, if we wanted to use that distinction. So for example, we see in Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12, we see kind of your standard operating procedure ministry positions. We got the Levites, we got the priests, we got the singers, we got the musicians. There's people inside the temple ministering uh, to God and, and sacrifices and offerings and songs of praise and exaltation to God. That's a beautiful thing. This is everything that Nehemiah came to do is the restoration of the worship of God's people in the temple and outside the temple. It's beautiful. This is amazing. I'm not minimizing the important role that the temple servants, the priests, and the musicians played ministering to God. But here's what I'm getting at. They're not the only people mentioned in Nehemiah 11 through 12. It's not just the priests that are mentioned. It's not just the musicians. It's not just the Levites. Here's what else is mentioned. We have some mundane Positions mentioned, we see various administrative gifts being used in the temple and in the city. So, for example, we see administrators of city management mentioned. And their responsibility include, included uh, street sweeping, including that the streets and the markets were clean, that proper sanitation arrangements were maintained in the city, literally plumbing. And we also see that they are, their responsibility is keeping buildings, buildings up to code. The next thing we see in our verse is, is verbatim. We see, quote, unquote, those who took care of the outside work of the house of God. Those who took care of the outside work of the house of God. These were your building maintenance engineers of the temple. These weren't musicians. These were guys who were really good with brick and mortar. So um, the temple outside was like any building. It's exposed to the elements. And so these guys would have to fix the, the, the leaks and the roof. They would have to kind of regrout the joints when they started crumbling and deteriorating. There were guys outside. These were maintenance guys whose primary role was the exterior beautification of the temple. They were good with brick and mortar, not so much with Waymaker and acoustic guitar. 
And you also had gatekeepers, gatekeepers mentioned. And, and they were the security force of the city. Their job was to protect the city from threats, to keep watch. And they determined who and what came in and out of the city. And all of these roles were essential to what happened inside the temple. All of it was, right? All of those roles were essential for the people of God. And so this is what I'm getting at. The thriving of Jerusalem, and therefore the thriving of the worship of God in the temple inside Jerusalem, included just as much the priests using their God-given gifts inside the temple as it did the building engineers and the administrators using their God-given talents working on the outside. And so land the plane here. In the same way, in order for the church of Jesus Christ to thrive, every member of the body has to put into use what God has given you. Every member of the body of Christ has to put into use what God has given us. What God has given you is what God wants to use. And we believe the lie uh, often, I'm sure we do, that we wrestle with is since I'm not good maybe on stage with a microphone or a musical instrument, I can't be used by God. Or stated differently, we believe this, this that the, the natural gifts or the spiritual gifts that God has given me are more mundane. They're not ministry gifts. They're mundane gifts. And in utter contrast to that, what the Bible clearly teaches is that each and every member of the body of Christ has been gifted by God with natural and spiritual gifts that are to be put into use. And the beautiful thing about this is all of us have something to give. All of us have a role to play. All of us has something to offer to the building up of the body of Christ for the advancement of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. First Corinthians 12, 14 through 21. You preach a whole sermon series on this. This is what it says. Great. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, oh, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, oh, well, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, which mental picture, that would be terrifying, by the way. <laughs> if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? It couldn't hear a thing. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. He's given us something, all of us something, that he has chosen to give us. We all have something from God to offer back to him, to his body. If all were a single member, where would the body be? That would be so lame, almost you can sense it in Paul's preaching. Where, where would the body be if we're just one by big ear or eye? As it is, there are many different parts with different gifts and strengths, and yet one body. In verse 21, the eye can't talk smack to the hand and say, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head can't talk smack to the nasty feet and say, I have no need of you. And I love the personification of different members of the body that Paul is alluding to. Here's a comical picture, right? And yet, how often do we fall for this? And what Paul is attacking, what he's, what he's challenging is clear, is this thought that, well, just because I'm not that flashy eye or that hand, he's attacking the idea that because I'm not that, then I have nothing to offer, that I'm not part of the body of Christ. And the truth of the matter is this, just as the human body only functions when each distinct member is fulfilling their God-given assignment, it's the same for the church. And just because your gift and gifting looks different than mine doesn't mean mine's more essential or less essential or whatever than yours. So a while back, like eight years ago, your boy up here broke his big foot toe, his big toe. Big foot toe? <laughs> I don't have big <laughs> My big toe. Okay, I don't have big foot. Okay. I broke my big toe. And if you're asking how I did it, I was playing soccer on asphalt, and I tried to kick a ball with all my might, 
I grew up playing ice hockey. I'm really good at ice hockey, and I'm really bad at soccer. And so I kicked the asphalt with everything I could, and I had Nike Freeze on at the time, which are basically a sock that they tied to a sole, and um, my toe broke, and I had to get stitches as well because that's how bad the break was. And um, now that toe, I didn't think anything about for years. Right? It was hidden. Maybe that's, you know, the other body parts would talk smack to it. They had to be like, toe, you stink, man. If you left, like, nobody would even care. Like, nobody ever sees you. Like, oh, you're nasty. Like, whatever. What do you do? What, do you, what function, what role do you play? You want to know what role that thing plays? That, that, that thing took a strike, and I was laid out for, like, three days. And then for a few months, that thing slowed the body down. That one small toe, where from the outside looking, you say, what, what role does that play? You want to find out what God give, God's role is for the big toe? Break it and see how much it affects your body right? You can't walk. There's things you can't do. It slows the entire body down from going where it needs to go and doing what it's called to do, right? And so the reason I share that is I'm saying that's how essential you are. That's how essential, like God's, with the scripture, God's word, each one, God's given us something. You have something to offer. What God has given you, he wants you to use. And the reason I share that is the key to thriving in the mundane, I think, is gladly receiving the gifts and the talents God has given us and putting them to use for something far greater than just our gifts and our talents. See, the guy who's doing brick and mortar on the exterior wall is just saying, oh, I'm just laying bricks today, right? You've heard this adage, I'm sure, shared by other pastors. Oh, I'm just laying bricks. Instead of saying, no, I'm helping build this beautiful, sacred temple of the living God where people will encounter his glory, he'll receive worship, and the overflow of that will go to the ends of the earth. Me repairing this brick and mortar on the side, it has eternal implications. This small, menial task of this roof leak, no, this is massive. This is an eternal impact, this role I have. And so application would would be this. Today is Volunteer Appreciation Sunday. And it takes over 20 people on a Sunday morning to, to make this worship gathering happen in the various departments. And again, if you're here, grab, volunteer, grab your uh, gift on the way out. It's volunteer, volunteer, volunteer Appreciation Sunday. And my simple application would be this. If you've, uh, we have a lot of new folks here and you're looking to get plugged in, is, is what I encourage you to do is join the team. Join the team. There's various departments that you can serve on. We've gone through a lot of transitions. As I've talked to a pastor this week, and it seems like 2022 was a season of a lot of turnover for a lot of churches with people, jobs moving, and PCS and all that stuff. And so uh, our various teams look like this. Kids ministry. Whether you're gifted or not, but you just love kids and you have kids your own, uh, talk to Seth and Michelle Shook about getting plugged in and discipling our kids. Uh, each and every Sunday, um, our, I, 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 I love the fact that I can um, come home and hear my kids talking about what they learned about Jesus and following him through our kids' ministry volunteers who are doing that right now back there. Uh, we have kids' ministry. We have guest services. If your gifting is, ex- like, you're an extrovert to the point that sometimes you neglect, like, you're a, you're a Mary, not a Martha, like, we want you on the guest services team at the front door, like, kicking it open. Hey, welcome to the transit church. Come on in. And I made the coffee. It was amazing. And you just, you want to shake people when you see them? Come join guest services, okay? That's, that's what we want. Guess there is they, they come here early, they clean up before, they clean up after, they set up, and they make delicious coffee week in and week out. The media team back there in the sound booth, the NASA Control Command Center back there with all the dials and the rocket launching stuff back there. If your gifting is more behind the scenes in media and you're just brilliant, I mean, the, 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 the amount of degrees 
and, and intellect that we have, the IQ and that breathe is, is amazing. Join the media team. Worship. If you are here and you have a gift of singing or musical instruments, don't, like, we need you. Like, God's given you that gifting, not to, like, shelve it, but to use it. Uh, intercessory team, if you just love uh, uh, praying and covering the church in prayer and people in prayer and being part of the altar prayer team here, talk to Kristen and outreach. Talk to Jess. If you want to uh, uh, pray, prayerfully partner with us with all the outreach endeavors that we want, uh, that we feel like the Lord is leading us onto, um, pray about that. And so all that say, you can go on our website, you can see all these teams and pray about, hey God, what would the next step look like for me at the Transit Church? Where have you gifted me? What do I have now to offer? And where can I begin to put that into use to build up the body of Christ here at the Transit? There's a lot of various departments. Hit up Jake at Transit Church, the pastoral intern, with all your questions and he will point you in the right direction. <laughs> Lastly, Last point is this, who you are is who God wants to use. Who you are is who God wants to use. One of the biggest things I think that kills our thriving and our walk with Jesus in the mundane is shame and condemnation. Shame and condemnation. We believe this, yeah, this lie. God can't use the present me. He can only use the future better version of me. Like, your boy needs a software update before God can use him, like Nick 2.0. Like, like, like Nick 2.0, the, the Nick that doesn't have the same besetting sins, or, or, or the Nick that, that is this fiery, fearless, bold evangelist. Like, like Nick 2.0, once God gives me that software upgrade, then God will use me. The future Nick, not the present tense Nick, the future better Nick who finally gets his act together and can figure this thing out. That's who God wants to use the 2.0 not the the myspace social media but the new trendy whatever okay and the lie is this is once i get there then god will use me and until then i'm on the bench now disclaimer i'm a huge fan of progressive sanctification right like you and i in our journey with jesus progressive sanctification meaning becoming more and more like christ and less and less like our sinful selves as we follow Jesus, huge fan of that. It's biblical. You should be too. Meaning that the person you are 10 years down the road will look more and more like Jesus and less and less like you 10 years ago and your sinful flesh. Okay, that's beautiful. That's the work of the Spirit. You and I work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's an expectation that we will mature in our understanding of the gospel, the goodness of God, and, and, and so on. Huge fan of that. All right? Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for that. But I think we believe this lie, like what's the benchmark? Like, for sure, we see that there's a high calling for, like, not many of you should presume to be teachers because you're going to be judged with greater strictness and all that. Of course, of course, there's a maturity and a maturation that takes place with all that. But I think we believe this lie. I grew up playing hockey. Anyone play hockey here? That's, okay, one guy, one guy. Okay, that's what I expected. And the way hockey works is, like, let me explain what the sport of hockey is. So you play it on ice. Uh, and so the way hockey works is um, you have lines, like first line, second line, third line, fourth line on offense. And if there isn't a stoppage of play, your shift when you're on the ice, your offensive line is on the ice, not talking about defense, but just offense, is like 60 seconds. It should be 60 seconds, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe a little bit shorter than that. And if there's no whistle, you have to change on the fly. Okay, so you're like on the bench, off the bench, climbing over. That's why you see all like the, if you ever watch hockey, it's not just like I think soccer or basketball where like it's a whistle and then you, you sub out. It's during the gameplay. Now, if I were, say, playing hockey in high school and my coach says, all right, Muddy, they, 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 sorry, they called me uh, 
uh, Muddy, because my last name is Mudge or so, and so they just call me Muddy. So anyways, none of you call me Muddy. Um, <laughs> Muddy, your shift is up. Get on out there. It, wouldn't it be crazy if I said, yeah, yeah, coach, like once I make the team, I'll, I'll get on the ice. Like once I, once I make the team, I'll get on the ice and, 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 and fulfill the, the role that you're calling me to. The coach would look at me. Well, some coaches would just chuck the water ball at my head and said, get on the ice. But the coach would have been like, wait, what, what, what are you thinking? What do you mean not on the team? I chose you. You made through tryouts. You made it. You made it. You done made it. You got the jersey. You got your name on the back. You got your number. What do you mean you're not on the team? You're on the team. Get on the ice. Yeah, you might trip. Yeah, you might fail. Yeah, you might miss a shot. But you're on the team. So get on the ice. And how much of us, how, how many of us are saying, well, once God puts me on the team, I'll get on the team. Conversion is when you're on the team, right? Every conversion comes with a commission to be used. By God, and that's the lie we believe that kills are thriving in the seasons of the mundane. It's, oh, well, once I make the team, then I'll get on the ice and play. And the truth of the matter is this, is if you have a pulse and the blood that's coursing through your veins is covered by the precious blood of Jesus, you're on the team. You get to play in the game. God's got great things in store for you. Ephesians 2.10 God's got good works in store for you. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance before you were even born. You're on the team. You get to play. You get to play. I was in a, uh, and I'll slowly wrap up with this. Famous last words. I, uh, I was in a, a community group a while back, a while back, and we're talking about spiritual gifts, and I heard this, this line said, um, pastors are always calling people to serve in the church. And the impression was like, it's exhausting and it's not scriptural. And I was sitting there and I was kind of like, uh, it's kind of like our savior who does that. Not just pastors who tell you, like if, if the, the, the text said, don't serve, I would come up and say, nobody use your gifts and nobody serve. That's what I would say, right? Because that's what God's word says. And then, and, then, and then what came out next was, I don't have the spiritual gift of service. So therefore I don't serve in the church was the line. And uh, that's another sermon for another time. But what we see in Scripture, in the New Testament Scriptures, is that the only prerequisite we see to loving and serving others is you knowing that you're loved and served by God in Christ Jesus. That's the prereq. That's the prerequisite. And that's the beauty of the gospel, is that what Jesus has done to you, he wants to now do through you. You've been forgiven, now go, relieve, go extend forgiveness to those around you. You've been greatly, undeservingly loved in spite of your sins by God and his mercies are new every morning like we sang about here on Sunday morning. Go extend mercy and compassion and love to those around you. So, so what that means is the second you understand, you're, 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 the Holy Spirit quickens your heart to realize that you are a sinner who needs a savior. Jesus is that sinner. He died on the cross for your place and you, and you give your life to Jesus as a response to what he's already done for you. You're on the team. And you get to go be an agent of his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his compassion to those around you. Don't take my word for it. First John 4, 9 through 11. Band, you can come forward and start playing, and I'll conclude with this as we segue into communion. In this, the love of God was made manifest, was made known, was shown among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Watch this, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Where you are is where God wants to use you. Yes, God has given you things that he wants you to use. And at the end of the day, it's who you are that he wants to use. You are beloved of God. And the natural outflow of a heart that's been rescued from our sins and rescued from hell, all due to the undeserving grace shown to us in Christ Jesus, it is a, is a desire to share that love with those around us. You don't have to go to seminary. Nothing wrong with seminary. I've been there. You don't have to be on paid staff at a church. I'm on paid staff at a church. Nothing wrong with that. The only prereq for being used by God is encountering and experiencing his life-changing love for you in Christ Jesus. And the common refrain we see about uh, to God's people in the pastoral epistles and Paul's letters is beloved. You are dearly loved of God. Now watch this. You are beloved right here, right now. It's not just the future better you that's loved by God. That's the beauty of the gospel. While we were sinners, Christ loved us and he died for us. It's not just the future better you who will finally get their act together that God loves and God will use. No, you are beloved here and now by God. You are precious in his sight. He delights in you and he's got great things in store for his kids. And now we receive that love. And the way we serve and love others is we simply give to others what God has undeservingly given to us in Christ Jesus. Compassion, love, mercy, and forgiveness. And so let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Let's fix our gaze off of ourselves and onto our precious Savior and what communion commemorates. And so I'll give you a moment to do that, and I'll pray, and then I'll lead us in communion. who you say we are that matters. I pray right now by your spirit, Lord Jesus, you'd wash away the lies of the mundane, wash away the lies of disqualification. You'd wash away the lies of the accuser of the brethren who's saying, you're, you're awful. If only you would get better, then maybe God would use you, the likes of you. I pray you'd wash away those lies by the power of your spirit right now and you proclaim the truth that you say we're beloved, you say we're redeemed, you say you belong to me, you're mine. The enemy can make no claim on those that God makes a claim of. Lord, you've bought us with your blood and no one and nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. And so we come to your table, the Lord's Supper, we come to your table celebrating your grace, celebrating your love, that in our sin, God, past, present, and future, you rain down on us, beloved, and you still use us and desire to use us, yes, us, to be your hands and your feet to this world. So thank you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would just seal up the work you've done this morning and that we would all leave here washed of condemnation and shame and that the joy of our uh, uh, relationship with you, that we stand in grace, would overflow to those around us as we go about back into the mundane, back into the real world, 
Lord Jesus. Give us a much bigger picture, a much more accurate picture of what the real world can look like when we bring you there, when we practice your presence in our office and prayerfully pull down heaven wherever our feet find us is sacred ground, Lord God. So we love you. We bless your name. We pray this in your name, Jesus. And Lord God's people said, amen. Well, we respond here to the preaching of the word by celebrating communion. If you need communion elements, there's some in a basket in the hallway. Feel free to grab those. Uh, Jesus instituted this uh, as a commemoration of his work. On the night that he was betrayed, he shared a Passover meal with his disciples, and he said, this meal is going to commemorate my body, my sacrifice, my blood, which is going to be broken. My body's going to be broken for you. My blood's going to be shed for you. My life is going to be given so that you may have life and me, and what this meal commemorates is that we are beloved of God, that he invites us to a table. He has provided what we need to cleanse ourselves of sin. He removed all the obstacles that would keep us from encountering him, keep us from worshiping him, keep us from his presence. It's his blood, it's his body, not our own. So we can come with assurance of pardon. We can draw near with confidence to this table, knowing that it was Christ's sacrifice, it was Christ's work, and that we can come and enjoy the presence of Jesus in this meal, in his fellowship for us, because we are the beloved of God. So we're going to sing one or two last songs of worship, continue to fellowship with the Lord in prayer, and as you feel led, take of the bread, take of uh, the blood, and uh, stand to your feet and sing whenever you're ready. Thank you.